So what kind of food makes you think about spring? Maybe some fresh strawberries, some grilled asparagus, a little bit of spinach and artichoke dip, maybe some rhubarb pie, kumquat chicken. Just me? All right. Maybe maybe just me. What about fried smelt? (laughs) When you think of spring, do you think of fried smelt? Yeah, I didn't think so. A couple of weeks ago, Karen Schneider wrote an article in the Coastal Journal uh, out of Bath, Maine, and she wrote an article, and this was the title, A Prelude to Spring, Fried Smelt, Crunchy Cabbage Salad, and Lemon Dessert. Okay, so what's a smelt? Well, smelt's a little tiny fish. It only grows to be about eight inches long normally. I think some get a little bit bigger, but it's just this little tiny fish. And, And if you've never had fried smelt, and I haven't, then I hate to break the news, but I think season was over like last week or week before last. You're going to have to wait till next year for some fried smelt. But just to kind of get your taste buds going and give you a little anticipation, here's how Karen describes it. I thought my mother was a magic wizard, the way she could crisp them up so perfectly. They tasted like running rivers full of snowmelt and daffodils and rain. I have no idea what that means. But, but I'm thinking if I'm in Maine and, and there's fried smelt on the menu, then I'm probably going to try, you know, get, get a little daffodils. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but, you know, maybe, maybe so. Karen also got my attention with her lemon dessert. She described it a little more. It was a recipe that she got from her Aunt Marion, who wasn't really her aunt. It was just the lady who lived next door. And, and the first time that she made this lemon dessert, she thought she had messed it all up. This is what she said. I dubbed it lemon kerfuffle. I wasn't sure I was doing it right, but after the mixture started baking in its hot water bath, something truly magical happened. Now, I've quoted Karen twice on food, and she's used the word magic twice. I like this. I like how she writes. She goes on to say this. In less than an hour, I had a dish of lemony lusciousness topped with a layer of sponge cake that was almost as light as meringue, you will be tempted to eat the entire thing by yourself. Now, I know this doesn't sound very Christian, but I'm really into desserts that I can eat entirely by myself. I like this. This is a good thing. It's a good moment. Now, when you think of spring and when you think of preludes to springs, you might not think of smelt. You might not think of lemon dessert. But right now, all of us have some some preludes in our mind for spring. We're all thinking something. Your idea of what spring is and thinking about spring may be completely different from everybody else's idea. But some of us right now are having some longings to be introduced again to beautiful flowers and warmer weather, longer days and fresh food. There's some preludes going on in our minds. What I'd like us to do for the next four weeks is to look at what may be the greatest prelude that has ever been played. A prelude that is full of power and authority. It's not just a prelude that will help you into a new season of the year. It's not just a, a prelude that will help you enjoy a few festive holidays. No, this is a prelude that can impact your heart and your mind and your soul every single minute of every single day for the rest of your life. It's quite a prelude. So what kind of prelude plays like that? 
Well, let's find out. Listen to Isaiah 61, beginning with verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The reason I said this might be the most unique prelude in the universe is because the person playing the prelude is not really the person playing the prelude. What does that mean? Well, I can't really explain it because it's the kind of thing that is way too cool and way too amazing to use human terms to try to explain. And the very nature of why I can't really explain it is what makes it so incredible. And it's the kind of thing that's designed to give you great hope for every day of your life. So let me try to explain the thing that I can't really explain. And that's this, that that Isaiah, the prophet, is, is playing this prelude. But he's not really playing this prelude. See, Jesus is playing this prelude through Isaiah. Isaiah is is writing down the words of Jesus. But here's the catch. Jesus wasn't born yet when Isaiah was writing this. In fact, it was going to be another 700 years before Jesus was born. So how in the world can the prophet Isaiah write down direct quotes from Jesus when Jesus has not even been born yet? Well, this is why. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. One day Jesus said this, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus declared that he was and is God. Now that sounds like crazy talk, right? (laughs) I mean, if one of us started saying that, we would think that we're crazy. So this sounds crazy. It's exactly what it sounded like to the people that were listening to Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes, among those Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you've grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. So what gives Jesus the right to utter the most shocking thing that has ever been heard in the history of the world? Well, what gives him the right is because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. On another day, Jesus said this, John 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Abraham was around about 2,100 years before Jesus was born. So how in the world can Jesus say that he existed before Abraham? The reason he can say that is because Jesus is God. Ravi Zacharias says this, he is the only entity in existence, the reason for whose existence is in himself. All other entities or quantities exist by virtue of something else. I don't exist by my own. You know, the the way this works physiologically is I come into this world through my parents. But this is not the way that we have with Jesus. 
All other entities or quantities exist by virtue of something else. And in that sense, Jesus alone is perfect, uncaused, infinite, undependent being in essence. Jesus, perfect, uncaused, infinite, undependent. Listen, there's nobody at your house and there's nobody at school and there's nobody at work There's nobody at this church, there's nobody anywhere at any point in time in history, past, present, or future, that can claim those things and they be authentic and true. Only Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is God. Now someone might say, well, maybe he just said that. Maybe he just said he was God. I mean, I could say that I'm the Nile River, right? But I'm not the Nile River, am I? Just a pudgy preacher that likes donuts and bacon. You know, you you know the truth. So how do we know that Jesus wasn't just talking? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just saying something? Listen to Mark chapter 4, verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Give them three billion tries with no CGI effects. And David Copperfield and David Blaine cannot do that. This is unheard of. John Piper says this, Jesus would be walking down the road seemingly like any other man, then turn and say something like, before Abraham was, I am. Or, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Or, very calmly, after being accused of blasphemy, he would say, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. To the dead, he might simply say, come forth or rise up, and they would obey. To the storms on the sea, he would say, be still. And to a loaf of bread, he would say, become a thousand meals, and it was done immediately. Look, there's nothing normal about Jesus There was never supposed to be anything normal about Jesus. Why? Because he's God. In essence, he is perfect. He is infinite. He is uncaused. He is undependent. This is who Jesus is. So, because he's God, if Jesus wants to play a prelude 700 years before he's born, he can pull it off, you know? He can do that, and he does. And so what's the first line of his prelude? Verse one again, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In other words, Jesus is not just shooting from the hip here. He has all of the authority of the highest heavens, all the authority of the deepest oceans behind what he is about to say. And what does he say? Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The word anointed here means consecrated, dedicated. It means means set apart. It means that Jesus is not just a, a Godhead figurehead. It means that he has a distinct and strategic purpose. That he's not just on some vague road trip. You see, 700 years after this prelude, the perfect, uncaused, infinite, undependent Jesus was going to leave the pleasures of eternity, an infinite eternity, 
And he was going to step into eternity present at the time to make a way to rescue me and you in eternity future. That is not a vague road trip. Jesus had a mission. And what was that mission? Listen to the rest of the prelude. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. The mission of Jesus was and is the gospel. The mission of Jesus was to make sure that, that we would hear that we do not have to stay dead in our sins. That's his message. And what makes the gospel so grand and so glorious and so wonderful is that even after you're saved, you don't have to stay stuck in the damage of your own sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like a father waiting by the door, just longing that his rebellious son or rebellious daughter will return and, and repent and come home and be loved again. God the Father is, is longing to hear our repentance. He longs to hear that our hearts are broken over our sin. He, he longs to hear that our minds are contrite over our sin. Why? Why does he have this kind of longing? Well, he has this kind of longing because his greatest longing is to deliver you from the guilt of your sin. It's his, his passion. And the way he does that is, is first through your repentance and your surrender to Jesus and salvation. But then, then after salvation, over and over and over again, it's God's longing, his desire to keep coming back and delivering you delivering you from the guilt of sin, delivering you from the power of sin, and one day to deliver you from the presence of sin. That's crazy. Just, just marinate on that for a second. That there's coming a day that, that God will deliver us from the very presence of sin. You'll never watch the news again and go, what's happening to this world? You'll never sit in the hospital again and, and hear this awful news God will deliver us from the presence of evil and sin and danger and pain and sickness. Friend, that is good news. That is great and grand and glorious news. And that's the news that Jesus was bringing. And how was he going to bring it? Well, he was going to bring it by preaching. <laughs> yeah, by preaching. See, that word bring here, that, that's really what it means. It means to preach. Jesus was a preacher. Charles Spurgeon has a really glorious way of thinking through this. He writes, he was always preaching. What, you say? Did, did he not work miracles? Yes, but his miracles were sermons. He preached when he was on the mountain. He equally preached when he sat at the table in the Pharisee's house. He preached by every moment. He preached when he did not speak. His silence was as eloquent as his words. He preached when he gave and he preached when he received. 
He preached from the bloody tree with hands and feet fastened there. He delivered the most wonderful discourse of justice and of love, of vengeance and of grace, of death and of life that was ever preached in this poor world. And I love what he says next. This was his calling. And he liked it so well and thought so much of it that he trained his 11 friends to the same work. And then he sent them out to preach as he had done. And then he chose 70 more disciples to go on the same errand. Listen, I don't mean to offend you, but if you do not like preaching, you do not like Jesus. Because Jesus was a preacher. Matter of fact, Jesus says that one of the most strategic parts of his mission was preaching the glorious grand gospel that God's grace is saving and amazing. Who was Jesus preaching to? Who was going to hear these sermons from Jesus? Well, he tells us in his prelude. Look at the next part of verse 1. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Jesus says in his seventh century prequel prelude that he is going to bring and, and preach the good news to people who are poor and afflicted. The word for afflicted and poor here, it means that you're almost shrinking back and cowering. The, the idea is it's almost like you're, you're sitting in a, in a shadow somewhere and you're crouched over and you've got a hand out and you're stretching your hand out hoping that someone will give you just a, a morsel of food. And with your other hand, you are covering your face in shame that you're having to reach out. It's a very intense word. You know, our world is, is full of people that live every day like that. Our world is full of people that are poor and afflicted and in poverty. In South Carolina, it's estimated there's about 280,000 children that live below the poverty line. That means that their families make less than $25,000 a year in their home. Now, someone might say, well, those children are poor because their parents are, are lazy and irresponsible. Th that may be true. But the reality is, is, remember, we have to think of our Savior here, right? Because Jesus was a jobless, homeless, penniless, itinerant preacher who didn't have any kind of 401k. So we have to remember the, the picture here is not that we're saying, oh, well, because Jesus didn't have a job and because Jesus didn't have a house, it's okay, you know, you, you don't need to have it either. You know, the message of Christianity is be homeless and be irresponsible and be lazy and, and the savings accounts, oh, those are of the devil. No, that's not the message of Christianity. But the message here would be this. When you consider your own salvation, the fact that you are no longer just a wretch, but you're a saved wretch. When you consider what Jesus taught, what he preached, what he said, what he did, when you consider your salvation, who Jesus was, what he did, what he said, then it is only natural that if we're going to follow after Jesus, we will remember to help the poor. And if we don't, then we, we kind of are calling our Christianity a bit into question if we would defy Jesus that much. I mean, I'm thinking if Jesus came back today, the whole, I'm not feeding those poor kids because their parents are a bunch of deadbeats thing, I don't think Jesus gives that a thumbs up. So this picture we have here is, is this call because of the example of Jesus to remember and bring good news to the poor and the afflicted. 
You know, our church is connected to some mercy ministries. Some of you are individually connected to mercy ministries. And we pray that God would continue to bless all of those endeavors. But I I do want to give you a, a personal challenge this week. This week, find a way to help someone in poverty. There's, there's thousands of ways to do that, just right here in Casey, West Columbia. You don't have to announce it. We're, we're not going to put in the bulletin next week. You know, just, just find a way to help someone who is truly in need. I know some of you are, are heading just up the street tonight to do that with some folks right here in our community. Find a way to, to help someone who is poor and afflicted this week and, and then do the same thing the next week and then do it again the next week until it becomes a normal part of your life. Poverty is not just a physical or social status. Though. The language here in this prelude in Isaiah, it really points more toward spiritual poverty and spiritual affliction. It's a description of, of the soul. Part of the sermon that Jesus gave to the church at Laodicea included this, Revelation 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Man, talk about missing the obvious, right? I mean, they thought that that they seemed to have everything they needed. You know, from a material possession standpoint that, you know, they had the the car and they had the house and they had the job and they had the retirement account and they had the savings account. They seemed to have, you know, the things that they, they really needed. And yet Jesus says, you think everything's good. But he says what? Actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, when it came to the things that matter the most, they were living under the spiritual poverty line. They were desperately in need, but they thought everything was fine. That's why I've shared with you before the words of my my friend Quincy from years ago when he said, you know what? Everybody needs Jesus. The gospel is for the down and outers and the gospel is for the up and outers. Everyone needs Jesus. So the picture here of of the poor, it kind of covers a lot of bases. It could be that you're poor and afflicted and deadbeat financially. Or it could be that you're poor and afflicted and you feel dead emotionally. Or it could be that you're poor and afflicted and you're truly dead spiritually. And so the picture here would be this, that dying without money or dying without an emotionally stable mind Those things aren't fantastic, but they're nothing like dying without Christ. To die without Christ is is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone. So see, your greatest need is not a job, a good job, or a better job. Your greatest need is not to find your inner self or your inner child or your inner hero. No, your greatest need. The greatest need is is my greatest need. See, we have the same greatest need, and that's this, that we would hear the words of this 700-year-old prelude before he was born. We We would hear, and we would know, and we would understand, and we would honor, and we would embrace, and we would obey, and we would enjoy 
hearing Jesus say and sing and play to us the truths of this prelude. That we would hear Jesus say at just the right time, when you were poor and afflicted and damaged and dead in your sin, I will arrive in Bethlehem. And at just the right time, I'll stand up in church when I'm about 30 years old and I will read this prelude out loud. And when I finish reading the prelude out loud, I'll turn to the people in the church and I will say, this prelude has now been fulfilled right before your eyes because I am the anointed one that you have been looking for. And at just the right time, Jesus says to us, I will be silent so my accusers will take me and on purpose deliver me over to be punished, to be crucified for your sin. And at just the right time, my dead body will be put into a a cold stone burial cave to affirm that I did not just fall asleep but I actually truly died for your sin. And at just the right time, my dead body will no longer be dead. And I will rise again so that you will know every single sermon I ever preached to you was true and real and completely satisfying. And at just the right time, my risen body will rise into heaven so that you will know that every promise in all of those sermons were completely and totally and satisfyingly true. And at just the right time, I'm coming again. And I'll make everything right. And I'll take you to come be with me where I am. But then the prelude says to us more. Because Jesus says, but until all of those times come, until these times come, here's my first sermon. It sounds like I'm giving it to you 700 years before it's supposed to be there. But I'm not. Because all of my love and all of my plans are perfect because I am uncaused, I am infinite, and I am undependent. And so through his prelude, he says to us, so stop unnecessarily being so spiritually afflicted and poor, but rather keep running to me. Keep coming to me so that I can give you hope, so that I can give you rest, so that I can give you joy. And keep coming to me so that I can remind you that those that I have redeemed There is coming a day where there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more stress and no more poverty. There'll be no more hospitals. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more dementia. There'll be no more orphans. There'll be no more human trafficking. There'll be no more funerals. There'll be no more enemy. Jesus says, no more, no more, no more. That's a prelude. That's a prelude that that we need to hear. See, in a few weeks, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus very strategically. But I want you to know that 700 years before Jesus was born, he gave a prelude so that we would know that 733 years later, that the resurrection would purchase all of those realities that I just mentioned for you. 
And that every minute of your life, all of those realities can be yours in Christ because he is no longer dead. So fight to hear this prelude. Fight to listen to this prelude. Fight to enjoy and embrace that Jesus made sure that long before he was born, this was written down so that you could hear it today. Just today. A few more thoughts from Spurgeon. The more diseased you are, the more sure you may be that the Savior came to heal such as you are. The poorer you are, the more certain you may be that Christ came to enrich you. The more sad and sorrowful you are, the surer you may be that Christ came to comfort you. <laughs> Listen to this, because this may be you today. You nobodies. You feeling that way today? You nobodies. You have been turned upside down and emptied right out. You who are bankrupts and beggars. You who feel yourselves to be clothed with rags and covered with wounds and bruises. You who are utterly bad through and through and know it and mourn and are humbled by it. So he says, all this is so you may know that God has poured the holy oil of anointing without measure upon Christ's own purpose, that he might deal out mercy to such poor creatures as you are. What a blessing this is. How we ought to rejoice in the anointing of Jesus since it benefits such despicable objects. We who feel that we are such objects ought to cry, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.